Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The San Francisco Foundation, working with its many partners to advance greater racial and economic equity for everyone in the Bay Area. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, two Sacramento men find out they have something in common. They were both in tragic accidents, accidents that also killed their mothers. How a mom's support never goes away. Turns out you don't need the person there to actually give you a sense of love. Just the idea that she's still with me in some way gives me a sense of strength that matters. And we head to Lassen Volcanic National Park to find out the story behind the name Bumpus Hell. You can actually smell Bumpus Hell before you actually see it. It smells like rotten eggs. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make the Golden State unique. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. In some ways, California was the birthplace of the sharing revolution. In the 60s, it was communes and community gardens. Now there's a tiny Bay Area nonprofit that's trying to use sharing to help the homeless. It's called Safe Time. Think Airbnb, but the rooms are free. Terrell Burt was one of the first to sign up. She's 65, and she lives alone in a three-bedroom townhouse in El Cerrito, near Berkeley. She recently invited a homeless family to live with her. Ariel Plotnick visited to check in on how it's going. Nikki Creer and her five-year-old son, Demarie, have just moved in. And they've already spotted a hawk. It flew down to the balcony and perched on a chair. Yeah, he's back. He loves it here only because of the view, and he likes um, animals. Safe Time works by matching hosts and guests for a short stay, a month or two usually. The guests aren't necessarily living on the streets, but they are homeless. To qualify, they can't have any criminal history or drug issues. The day Nikki moved in, Terrell started a diary. Day one. Today she arrives an hour early to move in. I am not ready. Inconsiderate or super responsible? Are we compatible? I look around and register that this is not a kid-friendly house. Too much glass and pottery. In walks a petite, outgoing young woman with a tall, handsome child. Mom, can I go on that swing? Come on, Mom. 
Excitement and joy floods the air. Nikki is 27, but still finding her way after years in foster care. She only has a high school degree, and finding work has been tough. And then she became a single mom. He's not really fond of learning letters right now. He just wants to play all the time. We've been to the marina a lot since we've been here. The Berkeley Marina is close to El Cerrito, which is great because Demarie loves animals. He's seen a stingray today. When we were on the, washed um, up on the, sea. Yeah, he was dead. It was but. dead. The water washed him on the rocks. Terrell loves hearing that. Like many of us, she has watched homelessness explode across the Bay Area. When you see the tent encampments and you just want to do something, but you can't really do anything. She felt helpless, but then she found out about safe time, and Terrell realized that she could do something else besides give money. When this program came along, it just seemed like a good fit. Terrell learned about safe time from her friend, Chuck Grant, in Kensington. He started safe time a few months ago. He was retired and reading about homelessness. So far, the program has made 10 matches. We thought there may be a significant number of people who would take folks into their homes for karma points. Terrell grew up in small-town Illinois, and her parents would take in acquaintances who needed a place to stay. But even with that example, Terrell needed something like safe time to make the experience feel more safe. But that's pretty much it. It's up to her and Nikki to figure out how to live together. But we have to tell the truth. Right. If you get mad at me for something, you have to say. Okay. And if I get mad at you for something, I have to say. And then there comes not compromise. Right, because it can't be perfect. Cooperation. Yeah, but what if it is perfect? And that's going to make it. Advocates who have worked with the homeless for a long time are watching this small experiment. Kelly Cutler works with the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. It's not just housing because, okay, here's a room. Here, go in here. Is everything, like, perfect now? No. That's, you know, the, you still need community. You still need um, different social support. A room helps, but people who are homeless also need services, jobs, health care, and sometimes child care, too. Nikki spent her summer working on all of that. She went to Seattle to check out a job, but couldn't find anywhere to live. She and Demarie spent a lot of weekends in Sacramento crashing with relatives. She looked for apartments there. She looked here in the East Bay. How's the apartment hunt going? Excruciating <laughs> to my brain. That's all I do from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. I'm looking for an apartment. When Terrell finally catches up with Nikki, they've scarcely seen each other for weeks. And so how long do you think you'll be here with Terrell? I don't know. I was going to leave actually today. Really? Yes, I was. Because you know why? It's just costing me a lot more money to come back and forth from Sacramento to um, to Richmond and then not even have to go to Oakland some days because I'm doing the homeless program. That's a huge surprise to Terrell. It's only been one month. That afternoon, out running errands, she's still feeling confused. I'm so her supporter in every way. Uh I just feel like maybe she misrepresented her family situation. I mean, why are we here? Terrell had a lot of questions. If Nikki was spending a lot of time in Sacramento with family, did she really need housing? And what exactly was she, a landlord or a friend? And the real frustration... 
why didn't Nikki think things through? Sometimes her decisions just didn't make sense to Terrell. Cutler with the Homeless Coalition says Terrell's reaction is understandable. If you're experiencing homelessness, it's you're in this constant crisis mode. And so it is a lot of reacting, and it's just about survival. Others who have stable housing and income would be like, I can't believe this decision that this person's making. Cutler says Nikki's behavior might make more sense if Safe Time helped hosts understand the realities of homelessness. That night, after Terrell got back from running errands, Nikki began packing. A few days later, she and Demarie moved out. They eventually found an apartment they could afford in Sacramento, but she's still searching for a job. Since then, Terrell has hosted three more people, and she's encouraged her friends to try it. We can't solve homelessness overnight. We can only take baby steps to get there. Terrell doesn't have any guests right now, but she's told Safetime she's ready to do it again soon. For the California Report, I'm Arielle Plotnick. called what 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 Como? what starting route to bumpus hell and now it's time for our series a place called what about california places with bizarre and surprising names this week we're headed to bumpus hell in plumas county it's not exactly a town it's a spot in lassen volcanic national park where Karen Hayner is the chief of interpretation and education. That means she makes the signs that warn people why it's risky to go off trail. You can actually smell bumpus hell before you actually see it. It smells like rotten eggs. It's uh, hydrogen sulfide. Bumpus hell has been described as like a little Yellowstone. We have boiling mud pots and boiling pools. Bumpus Hell is named after a, a gentleman that, by the name of Kendall Bumpus, who back in 1865 was a guide for a group. Kendall was warning everyone to be careful of where they put their feet and stepped because he knew how, how crumbly the ground could be. And unfortunately, he took a misstep and his leg plunged into the, the boiling acidic water. And it burned him very severely. That's where it got its name. It was considered to be his hell because of what he experienced. People say bum pass or bump ass or, you know, they, they can't um, quite figure out. But Bumpus is what his last name was. Unfortunately, we have had uh, a couple of individuals in recent years where they have um, decided to 
to ignore the signs, and there have been um, a couple of accidents. We have visitation of over a half a million folks to the park each year, and Bumpus Hell is one of the three major trails that people want to go out and visit. It's like, how can I get there? How can I get to Bumpus Hell? Bianca Taylor produced that interview with Karen Hayner about Bumpus Hell in Lassen Volcanic National Park. Bumpus Hell's trails will be closed for repair this season, but you can plan a trip for summer 2019 when they're scheduled to reopen. In the meantime, head to CaliforniaReport.org to check out photos and send us a comment with your idea for another California place with an unusual name you'd like to hear about. Or shoot us an email, CalReport at KQED.org. Keep those ideas coming. Usually political reporters and the politicians they watchdog have something of a contentious relationship. Like reporter Alan Young, who's interviewed West Sacramento Mayor Christopher Cabaldon as part of his beat for years. But they recently discovered they share something unusual and terrible in common. When they were young, they were both in tragic accidents that killed their mothers. And their moms continue to inspire and influence both of them today. Just a note, in case you're listening with kids, there's some graphic material in this story. As politician and journalist, Mayor Cabaldon and I are not friends. We're more like fencing partners. I've reported on his efforts to grow the local economy and to finance a downtown streetcar. But when I published an essay last year about being involved in a violent accident that killed my mom, the mayor texted me to say that when he was 12, he was with his mother, Diane, when she died in a car accident. I responded to the mayor with the idea for a magazine profile that would tell his story. As it turned out, he's a public figure with a very private life. And at first, he wanted to keep it that way. Well, I didn't want to do it. Who would want to do this? (laughs) Really, I mean, there's no part of me that wants to talk to other people about it. And you're a reporter. I've I've sparred with you plenty of times in in our respective roles, so I didn't have a set of talking points. Eventually, the mayor trusted me to write the story. At the time of her death, Diane was divorcing his father, Larry. It was a dark time in her life, and on this one night, she had been drinking. My mom's sister's daughter went to her birthday party, and it was fun. I remember listening to Holland Oates songs and playing games, and uh, um, my mom was drinking because uh, she was upset. We got in the car to go home, finally, and my brother and I both piled in the back seat and lied down on the back seat and just went to sleep. Then the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. Uh, something was wrong with my ankle and my hand, and there was some, some, some cut on my face. And I looked over across the room. My brother was in the next bed over, also with, you know, bandaged up and other injuries. My dad comes in the room and uh, says, uh, boys, there, there was an accident, and uh, you, were, you were in a car accident, and your, your mom didn't make it. I, I didn't know how to react. Neither of us did. We just, um, I mean, we were wailing, obviously, but just all at once she was just gone. And for at the age of 12, maybe at any age, I mean, just, uh, just go to sleep one moment um, and then wake up and your mom's just gone. Um, uh, yeah. 
I can relate to that moment. You realize, this is the worst day of my life. It's Christmas morning, 2008. My parents are divorced, and I'm an only child. I'm 24 and home in Petaluma for a long weekend. My mom and I wake up early to drive to the mountains to go skiing, but this big blizzard keeps us in traffic for hours, and when we finally get to the ski resort, the conditions are so bad we just decide to go home. I'm frustrated, but my mom, Sydney Parks, says, relax your brow. That was her phrase whenever she caught me being sad or brooding. She'd say those words and softly wipe her hand across my forehead. On the way home, we decide to go for a little hike. We're walking away from the car on what looks like a perfect trail, with a hill on one side and a creek on the other. I look down and realize we're on train tracks. Mom is ahead of me, and I'm thinking, It's Christmas Day. Everything is shut down. A train is not going to roll through here. We make it a couple hundred feet on the tracks, and this big plow train speeds around a curve. We hadn't heard a thing until it was right in front of us, charging at us. The train has this huge metal grill, and waves of snow are just spewing out from both sides. There's this yellow spotlight on the front, like a big eyeball. We start running, and my mom falls, right in the middle of the tracks. I turn around and grab under both her armpits and try to throw her out of the direction of the train. As I lift her up, we're both struck. I'm knocked a few feet from the train and land face first in the snow. My mom is hit head on by the train and she's thrown about 25 feet. The train is screeching to a stop and I'm thinking, I need to get to my mom. I try to lift myself up but my right arm and my right foot are both broken and they can't take any weight. I slide across the snow with my left arm and leg. When I reach mom, she's slowly blinking her eyes and opening and closing her mouth. She makes no sound. Parts of skin on her lips have been torn off, exposing teeth. My thought is, this is really bad. I just start repeating the same words over and over again. We're going to be okay. Don't worry, we're going to be okay. By the time the paramedics get there, Mom has stopped moving. This team of guys hoist me onto this plank, and they start walking me toward the ambulance. And that's when I lost it. I just started screaming. When a parent dies, you're left with a memory and whatever advice you can hold on to. West Sacramento Mayor Christopher Cabaldon told me his mother, Diane, remains the most important person in his life, and with everything he does, he just wants to make her proud. He drives to Los Angeles to visit her, stands over her grave, and talks to her, out loud. Even though she died when he was 12, he can still imagine what advice she would have for him today. With what little knowledge a 12-year-old kid has about his mom's point of view on the world, it it turns out it's actually quite a bit. Little sayings and little lessons and observations about what she did and choices that she made sticks with me um, even today in evaluating, you know, and giving myself advice. Turns out you don't need the person there to actually give you a sense of love. Just the idea that she's still with me in some way. You know, uh, whether she's watching over me or she's just in my own heart, that uh, gives me a sense of strength that matters. And actually, in, from, and in my life, it's mattered a lot. It's very real. After I published The Mayor's Story, 
he and I go back to being fencing partners. But that interview with him made me realize that I should be more conscious about my ongoing relationship with my mom. This coming year, my wife Lily and I want to grow a family. I may need to change jobs to pay the bills. Mom, I want to speak to you directly. I get stressed out. I get frustrated. Your phrase, relax your brow, it still means a lot. I can feel you reach out and touch my forehead. Don't worry, you tell me. We're going to be okay. That story was produced by Alan Young. The original music was composed and performed by Ben Baird. California Report magazine takes you on a road trip for the ears. Getting directions to forks of salmon. We visit the places and meet the people who make the Golden State unique. From a homeless college student in Oakland. So I don't feel like just because I'm homeless that I have to look the part. To a cattle ranching mom in the Sierra foothills. I fix fence, we pull calves, I do everything. We're the Half Hour Weekend magazine. The in-depth storytelling show from the California Report. And we're launching our own podcast. Subscribe to the California Report magazine on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. gold rush era in California. It's a time artists and writers often romanticized, like Mark Twain or Puccini in his 1910 opera, The Girl of the Golden West. Now a new opera about the gold rush, Girls of the Golden West, tells a much darker story. Think greed, racism, and environmental destruction. KQED's Chloe Veltman brings us the story of how a massive stump of a giant sequoia tree made the journey from the Sierra Nevada to the opera stage. The stump is a vision from Dante. That's stage director Peter Sellers on a break from rehearsals at San Francisco's War Memorial Opera House. He's describing a recent trip he took out to Calaveras Big Trees State Park to see the stump of what was once one of the tallest trees in the world, the Discovery Tree. It's some wild rage of the spirit world that just is coming out in this twisted scream of roots. 
Sellers first heard about the stump when Girls of the Golden West composer John Adams emailed him an antique etching of it. The image shows a bunch of well-dressed couples dancing on top of the stump. At around 24 feet across, about the size of a small ice rink, it must have made for a bucolic setting for the two steps and waltzes of wealthy 19th century tourists. I was just stunned because, of course, it's a shocking image. The incongruous vision of a bunch of humans twirling and stomping all over the dead remains of one of the biggest marvels of the natural world captured Seller's attention. It spoke to the bleak themes of his new opera. The destruction of the natural world, the kind of uh, relentless and heartless progress of this idea that the only thing that matters is money, and the gold rush, of course, epitomized that. No one's dancing on the discovery tree stump the November morning I visit. The air in the grove is crisp and damp. I'm entranced by the steam rising off the lofty, chocolate-coloured trunks. And then I see the stump. Wow, look at this thing. It's a beast. (laughs) (laughs) Big Tree State Park docent Sanders Lamont tells me the 1,200-year-old hunk of wood still gets plenty of visitors. Well, we're standing on what's known as the giant stump of the discovery tree. Lamont says word got out about the tree in 1852 when a hunter named Augustus T. Dowd came across it while chasing down a bear. He says no one believed Dowd about his find at first. He said, men, I found the biggest tree in the world, and they said, shut up and have a drink. But Dowd eventually convinced a crew to return to the site with him. They were floored and news of the discovery tree spread fast. Even in Europe, it was a sensation. And uh, from there on, it becomes a story of typical 1800s exploitation. Lamont says sequoias make for lousy lumber and firewood. So some enterprising local businessmen quickly realised they could make money from the discovery tree another way, by hacking the giant down and turning it into a travelling exhibit. The roadshow failed to make money. But tourism to the Sequoia Grove took off in a big way, especially when the entrepreneurs added a hotel, a bar and even a bowling alley. Meanwhile, the giant sequoias in the grove started to attract scientists' attention, like the eminent naturalist John Muir, who wrote articles calling for their preservation. Starting in the 1870s, other voices around the world joined the campaign and saving trees soon became a thing. Eventually, the state park system came into being to protect them. The outrage over the cutting of this tree sparked the modern environmental movement all around the world. Let's get back to the opera, where a recreation of the giant stump takes up almost the entire stage in Girls of the Golden West. It's front and centre for some of the opera's most cataclysmic moments, including an attempted rape and an angry mob yelling for non-white miners to get out. The whole thing ends with a baleful aria describing the mess the miners have made of the landscape. Discarded bottles and cans litter the land. 
But like the role the discovery tree played in igniting the public's conscience about caring for the natural environment, so the opera ends on a slightly positive note, with an image of the fathomless splendour of the California sky. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltzman. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. Our technical producer this week is Rob Spate, with additional engineering from Seal Muller and Katie McMurrin. Victoria Maulione is our senior producer. Bianca Taylor is our intern. And our online producer is David Marks. Our team also includes Susie Racho, Carrie Feibel, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. The Barracuda Networks, network application, content, and data security solutions for physical networks and public cloud platforms. Learn more at barracuda.com slash products. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randal Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.